Um, but yeah, uh, Steve unpacked the rich man and Lazarus and that parable, and I mean, all sorts of things. Now we're getting into, uh, this will be kind of our, our last parable before next week where, you know, we're, we're doing Christmas. But um, this is actually one of Jesus' longest parables that are recorded in the New Testament that we're going to get at today. So there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot that could be done. Um, but what's really strange about this one is that it's strangely neglected by many commentaries and many books on parables. So I always find that interesting when you have a text that's like so significant and kind of so major, yet it's neglected in a lot of theological writing or, or commentaries. And usually that's because there's a lot of stuff that we don't know what to do with, right? Like, like usually there's strange stuff in it. We're like, I'm not going to write about that one. I'll just move on. Um, So this is the beauty of walking through the Bible and preaching expositionally where we can't just like skip passages and be like, I don't know. That's not really going to speak to our felt needs as humans in in North America today. So we'll just skip it. But thankfully, we don't. And so there's a lot that could be done in this text. Um, But what Jesus is doing, just to set the context, is something called, some of you will have heard this, the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse. And what Jesus is doing in this text is he's sitting with his disciples on the Mount of Olives and he's coming the, at the, to the end of his earthly ministry and he's looking forward and he's starting to unpack for them the future implications about what he is going to accomplish on the cross. Right? So the whole thing, kind of Matthew 25, um, 24 through 25, is the Olivet Discourse. And so the p- parable that we're going to look at falls right smack dab in the middle of that. Now... Here's what we have to understand about this text. Uh, this is one of, the, one of the most abused passages, the Olivet Discourse, in all of the New Testament. Um, and here's why. Because it talks about the future. And there's one thing we're not good at, is talking about the future and not getting crazy, right? And so there's all sorts of weird things that are done with this text. Um, there's two extremes of this text. Some people say, well, all Jesus was doing was kind of unpacking what was about to happen in, in 70 AD when Rome shows up and kind of does its thing to Jerusalem. And others will take this text and see, well, no, 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 but it's, it's, it's actually only future. So it's like a future code that we're supposed to crack. And so we got to take, you know, this passage and we got to read it with the newspaper in one hand. And, and we always, we got to try to figure out what, what the rumors of wars are and, and what the signs and wonders are going to be, right? And there's always some kind of a prophet who's, taking this passage and talking about the year or the date or the month or the time that Jesus is going to return. And usually, if not always, they're false prophets and they're wrong. But then they just go and make up another date because they don't learn, right? So here's what happens in this text is we end up seeing this as some kind of like a code to crack instead of seeing what Jesus is actually doing. And all throughout the Olivet Discourse, Jesus repeatedly says over and over again, no one knows the time of the consummation of what I'm going to do. Except my father. You do not know the hour that the Lord is coming. The son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Yet, then we take a text like this and try to figure out exactly the time, right? So we do weird things with this text. And here's what I want us to know before we jump into it. Anytime Jesus speaks about the future, he is always and only speaking about the future for the benefit of the present. And so remember the context. He's sitting with his disciples on the Mount of Olives telling them about the future implications about what he's going to accomplish, but he's doing it so that it changes them now. It changes them in the present, that there's something about what he is going to do in the future that does cast a shadow back and change how we think about the present. And for us, right now, we're caught between the times, right? There's an already not yet-ness to the kingdom. Jesus says the kingdom is, is actually here. It's, it's now. Yet, there's a full consummation, a fuller fulfillment of the kingdom that is yet to come. So this text is actually not Jesus setting an agenda for the future. Instead, it's a call to obedience 
in the present during Jesus' physical absence. That's what he's trying to get at for his disciples. This is important because then he turns the corner and talks about stewardship. He talks about what we actually do with what we've been entrusted with, right? And that makes way more sense in the context when we understand that that's what Jesus is doing. And last, before we get into the verses themselves, in Matthew 24, 6, Jesus says to his disciples, see that you're not troubled. He's talking about the future. See that you are not troubled. Now, if there's one thing that we are in the West, in our Western Christian things, when it comes to the future, it's troubled. Anyone with me on that? Like, there's good reason to actually be troubled right now, right? There's, there's things in the future, there's things looming that are like, that's troubling. I, I don't, there's a lot of question marks. There's a lot of things that could potentially be troubling. And Jesus looks at his disciples and looks at you and I and says, when it comes to the future, be not troubled. Be careful not to live with what ifs at the expense of what is. Like, like live in the present. Present obedience in light of the future is what he constantly calls his disciples to. He constantly calls us to obedience to the things that already are. To things like the Great Commission. To go and make disciples of all nations. Things like the Great Commandment. To go and love God over all things and then love our neighbors. To go and care for orphans and widows. The, the great requirement of Micah 6, of, of going and actually um, seeing that the Lord requires us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. That those are the present things that you and I can and should be focusing on in the present and not being concerned about the future. Okay? There's a saying that I, I heard growing up, and I thought it was kind of ridiculous. And now I'm like, oh, maybe it's not as ridiculous, because that's what wisdom does. Amen? Right? <laughs> But there's a saying I heard growing up, it's that some people are too heavenly minded to be any earthly good, right? Just kind of like, you're always just kind of like in the future, just speculating and doing stuff in the future, but not actually presently doing anything. But I also think the opposite is true, is that some of us can be way too earthly minded to do any heavenly good. And I think that's exactly the tension that Jesus gets at with this parable, he warns of both of those tendencies. He warns of, of both only and always being caught up with the future at the expense of now, but also he warns disciples about being all caught up with the stuff of now and not thinking about the future consummation of what his kingdom actually means. Okay? So let's hold that tension together and jump into the parable of the talents. Um, I wouldn't call this the parable of the talents because it's not even really about the talents at all. It's about... It's really a parable of like the faithful and the lazy servants. That, that's really what this is about. So that's what we want to do. So let's, let's unpack a few verses. Starting in verse 14, Matthew 25. Jesus starts and he says, For it will be. So he's talking about the kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom. The kingdom will be like a man going on a journey who has called his servants and entrusted to them his own property. To one, to one servant, he gave five talents. We'll look at that in a sec. To another, he gave two talents. And to another, he gave um, one talent to each according to their ability. Then he went away. He left. He who had received the five talents went at once immediately, and he traded with them, and he made five more talents. So also, the one who had two talents made two talents more, invested and returned. But he who had one, uh, the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came back and he settled accounts with them. Pause there for a second. Okay, so here's the parable that he's setting up. We have a scene of a very wealthy 
master, a very, mas- uh, a very, very wealthy owner, handing off and entrusting to stewards, to his servants, to managers of his property and all of his stuff. And he starts and he says, the kingdom will be like, okay? So remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples saying, this is what the kingdom reality is going to be like in my absence, And what's interesting about this parable is that often, as we've seen over the parables, um, often when there's a Lord or like a master or a boss in them, it's God, right? Of course. This one, it's Jesus. It's very specifically Jesus as he's speaking to his disciples and trying to show them this isn't about God in general. This is actually specific about the work that I'm doing, the work that I'm about to do, and the, the absence of me physically and what you're going to do in the interim. Right? So he's specifically applying this to himself. It's a call to follow Jesus as a servant. Now here's what's interesting. I preached about this earlier this year, but I think when we start talking about submission and service and and being a a servant of God or a slave of God and, and a master and a Lord, it's strange language for us today. However, we're all mastered by something. We all serve something or someone or some end. Right? Why? Well, because there's something about where that is going, where I'm going to serve this end to the, the, the telos, the end goal of this, because that is going to make me successful. That's going to validate me. That's going to make me approved, right? So all of us culturally, when we look at what we're serving, there's tons of things on offer culturally of what we should give our life to, who we should serve, mainly self, or, or others, or fame, or a platform, or money, or possessions, or, or whatever it is. But these are all this language of master and servant. That's what we see. That's what we see in this text. And notice what he entrusts to them. He doesn't entrust to them some of their, their stuff. It says his property. So his whole livelihood. Everything that the master has, he takes it, chops it up, like divvies it out to these servants, and then gives it to them. Now here's what's important here. We've got to understand this. Nothing you have belongs to you. Nothing. Okay, and I, I know, I know we're told the opposite. Okay, nothing you have is yours, right? So we hear this today. I'm a self-made man. One of the Kardashian, I don't forget how many there are, whatever, but one of the Kardashians, the first self-made billionaire. And you're like, self-made billionaire? Like a multi-million dollar family and it's a self-made billion. Like we do this strange thing with I'm a self-made, I'm an independent lady. I'm an independent man, right? Yep. Like, like you got to stop and like think through some of the things that just like float around in the ether of our culture. Because then it's like, oh yeah, you're self-made. Like what did you make yourself with? Like, like did you decide where you were born? Did you decide what you looked like when you were, did you decide who your parents were? Did you make them too? Did you make all the opportunities you were given by where you were born and where you grew up in the socioeconomic context you grew up in? Did you make that up too? Are you, are you not dependent on anyone or anything because you're just so independent because you're self-made? We gotta be really careful because this stuff creeps in and then we become owners of things that we think are ours instead of stewards of everything that God has entrusted to us. Every breath in your lungs is a gift. Everything, the community you live in, the house you live in, the clothes on your body, your skin color, your ethnicity, your language, your culture, all of that is a gift that has been entrusted to us to be wise managers of it because there is a day coming when you and I will answer to the master for everything he's entrusted. Church, that changes everything. It changes our posture towards everything. 
And if we are not careful and we do not keep our eyes and mind and heart shaped by the word of God and the reality that he is the master who is returning to balance the accounts of everything he's entrusted to us, we will quickly run into just self-madeness and independence and it's about upgrading me and living for me and I've, I'm, I've done all this for myself. I've worked hard, therefore I deserve this. You fall into the entitlement. You fall into the ownership. And we cannot live a part of the kingdom if we want to try to simultaneously hold on to that because those two postures are entirely different. And it creeps up and it creeps in and it gets into our heart, especially in the suburbs like, we're just so insulated from everything. And in the, in the burbs, we're just told that life is made for you. Like, it, everything is for you, and it's about you. And I can go and I can get my, my coffee, and I can say fancy words about it, and I can put, like, things on it, and, like, a nice insulated sleeve on it so I don't burn my fingers. And, right, like, I mean, everything's just so, right, like, like down to, like, the smallest things. Like, I like Starbucks. But I'm just saying, like, there's just so much about our life that screams at us that it's about you and it's yours. And Jesus is like, no, 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 this is so dangerous. Like, it's so subtle, like it just creeps up and it, and it creeps out. And we'll see where that leads with the unfaithful, lazy, slothful servant. But the talents that he entrusts, this is important because a talent, I mean, you, you hear it, you're like a talent. It's like, look at me dance. It's my talent. It's not, by the way, but, you know, that, that we think about that. But here, here's the thing. In the ancient context, one talent was about 20 years worth of wages, Okay, so it was, a, it was a measurement of currency, about 70 pounds worth of a currency. Now, it's a lot of money, okay? So this is the thing. In this context, you're like, one talent, what's that? Most commentators say that that's about between 800,000 and a million dollars. One talent. Roughly about a million bucks. The guy who got five talents, that's like five mil. It's like the master's like, I'm going to trust you with five million dollars. Don't just go buy a Maserati, you moron, right? Like, like it's like, do something with this, right? right? So it's a lot of money. But even the one with the one talent, that's 20 years worth of you working your butt off. Like 20 years worth of your salary and your wages. It's a lot of money. And here, we got to understand, it is money, but it is more than money. Okay, our English word talent actually comes from this word in Greek. So the abilities that we're, we're, we're given, the talents that we have, the natural gifts that we have, musically, artistically, relationally, whatever it is, those are talents that we have. It's also this. So this isn't just money, but it includes money, is what Jesus is getting at here. So there's kind of like a two-layered meaning to the talents here. The first is money, wealth, and possessions. It's everything that we have. It's everything that we currently have like our bank account, our assets, our material possessions, everything that we do own, right? Um, that is part of this talent. Now, the second piece, though, is that it's everything else, too. That's really important. It's everything else, too. It's all of our abilities. It's all of our health, our strength, our time, our energy. It's our opportunities. It's the various privileges and responsibilities we've been given. It's all of our advantages. It's, it's our job. It's our vocation. It's our career. It's our neighborhood. It's people. It's our relationships. It's our spouse. It's our kids. These are all things entrusted to us to manage for the benefit and glory of the master. That's what Jesus is doing here. So think big, think, think everything. And this isn't going to end up being a, ser a sermon on money because I don't think that's what Jesus is doing primarily in this text. But you have to understand that it does include everything we have. So every breath, every dollar, 
every relationship, every day. Have you ever, think of, have you ever thought about stewarding a day? Like stewarding your time, being, what am I going to do with this day? What am I going to do with this hour? What am I going to do with this night? Every night you have to be stewarded. Every opportunity you've been given to be stewarded. Now here's why this matters. Because if nothing you have belongs to you, it means that you'll answer for how you use what you have. And that's what Jesus is getting at. That there is going to come a day where all of us, believer or not, religious or not, that that doesn't matter. It's that we are going to be in a position where the check, the, the balance is going to happen, the accounts are going to be balanced, and we are going to answer for what we did with what we have. And biblically, we call it stewardship. That just means manager. And here's the difference between an owner and a steward. An owner sees everything as belonging to them for their own personal enjoyment and gain, right? But a steward, a steward sees their life and possessions as belonging to God to be used for his purposes and our enjoyment, that there's actually something about the joy that we get to live for. That we get to live into the joy and towards the joy of what we've been given. Okay? So just, just hear me. God has not just given you what you have. He has entrusted it to you. Right? So in the parable, it's the master's stuff. It's his property. It's not ours. He's not giving it to us. He's entrusting it to us. And there's a huge, huge difference. So I'll put the question to you. What has God entrusted to you? What has he entrusted to you? Not, not others, okay? So here, here's the thing. You'll immediately be like, well, not very much. Because look at, and then fill in the blank with whoever has like a TV in their fridge and a dog that has Versace on. You know, like it's just like the insanity that we end up comparing ourselves to and be like, well, I only have the one talent. It's like, that's a million bucks, baby, right? So, so we gotta, gotta be careful because again, like comparison is the thief of joy. Are you with me on that? Like, like, we're biblically commanded to not compare ourselves to people. Like, it's a command. Like, like don't covet and, and don't compare yourself to other people. Why? Because we can lose track of the fact that the master is the one that decides how many talents he's given. Right? So you look at these servants. One of them gets five. One of them gets two. And one of them gets one. You know what they don't do? They don't go, aw, why didn't I get five? That's important. That's important because comparison, and this is our culture, comparison is the thief of true joy. And comparison is the, the, cheat, the, the, the thief of true productivity, of actual fruitfulness. Because we're too caught up with what we don't have instead of actually looking and saying, what can I do with what I do have? As insignificant as it may feel sometimes, that there's some serious kingdom value, serious kingdom significance in all of the things we've been entrusted with. So there's something really important there that kind of speaks to that. And it... Uh, and it causes us to pause and think about all that we've been entrusted with, the relationships we've been blessed with, the jobs and the talents and the careers and the vocations and and the gifts and the abilities that we have, Uh, the places that we find ourselves. That's a gift to you. Like the spaces you find yourself in, your home, that's, that's a gift to you. Your neighborhood, that's a gift to you. You're entrusted with those things. The context that you brush shoulders with other human beings, like those things are spaces that have been entrusted to you. The money that you have, the possessions that you have, the opportunities you've been given, these are all things that we've been entrusted with. And when we live like that, it causes us to actually be intentional. And Jesus does this a lot. And this is crazy. I counted it up this week, but 11 of the 38 parables across the New Testament are about this, are about 
what we do with what we have. Like, and some of them's about money specifically. Other times it's like this, where it's about money and everything else, right? And a quarter of Jesus' teachings, that means like one out of every four times Jesus opens his mouth, he's addressing this. He's pointing people to what they have. Why? Well, because what we do with what we have shows what is most important to us. And he says that like your, your heart, like your treasure is where your heart is. That whatever is at the end of that rainbow and you're chasing whatever that next thing is, that f- hypothetical future version of something or you that's going to satisfy you, that ultimately that is what makes up your life. And that's every single one of us. How we think about and how we interact with and how we use everything that we have is what makes up our life. So just, just understand, like, Jesus' concern is never money or stuff. Like, he's never concerned with the money or the stuff or even the amount. Like, he, in this parable, he just gave $5 million. Like, that's a generous, like, it's like, I don't know, I got a lot of money. I'll just give five million bucks, right? Like, like, he's never concerned with the money or the stuff. He's concerned, though, with his disciples' relationship to our money and stuff. That's what he's always concerned with. Why? Well, because money, money talks, Money talks about our priorities. You follow your money and you will find what ultimately is central to your identity. What you believe will ultimately satisfy you. The significance and the security and the safety that you think you've been afforded. And in our culture, the materialism and the comfort and, you know, the standard of living that you deserve, that's constantly pitched at us as the end. So then what we do, well, we take everything we have to try to get to that end. It's like, if only I lived in that community, if only I had that much money, if only I had this job as this CEO, like, if only, if only, if only, it's always the standard of living that we are pitched, we're kind of just like, that is what will satisfy you. Then you talk to the people who are there and got there, and it didn't, because it's always something next, there's always something more. And I think that's what Jesus is doing when he teaches like this. He pulls us back to the present. He pulls us back to present obedience. Pulls us back to stewarding what we have right now. Okay? So, it's very subtle. It's very subtle how it shows up. And Jesus is kind of like putting our heart on display through this. But, this is not just a parable about stewardship. It's specifically a parable about stewardship in light of the future. So if you notice that, it's after a long time the master came back. Okay, so a long time between what Jesus does on the cross and when he returns. How long? Let's crack the code. Just kidding. Let's not. A long time. We don't know, right? But there's a long time between that point where the master entrusts his servants with stuff to when he comes back. But then he does come back, okay? So this is about present obedience in light of the fact that this is moving somewhere, that this is all going somewhere, okay? So watch verse 20 through 30. It's a big chunk. Ready? And he who had received the five talents came forward to the master. So the master shows back up. He's like, I'm back. And the one who had five talents came forward, bringing the five talents more. So he had 10 total, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Come and enjoy and enter into the joy of your master. I love how he says like, Five million bucks wasn't very much. That just shows us how generous our, our, our master really is, right? And then the second service, uh, servant came who had two talents, and he said, hey, master, you delivered to me two talents here. I've made two talents more. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, so I will set you over 
much. Enter into the joy of your master. But he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent to the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked, that's evil, you evil and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and I gather where I scattered no seed. Like it's, it's sarcasm there. It's like, oh really, you, you knew that about me? That's interesting. Then you ought to have even invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. He's like, you didn't even do the bare minimum. You literally dug a hole and put it in the dirt. You could have at least put it in the bank and it would have had a little bit of interest. That would have been like the bare minimum. That's how lazy he is. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast this worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow. There's a lot there. And unless you want another three-hour sermon, we're going to move quick. But here's what's happening here. We see a big difference between the first and second servant and the third. Okay? Big difference between the first and second one and the third one. If you notice the words that are used of the first and second servant, they're very active words. They take action. They actually do something. Right? You notice that words like right away, immediately, and they made something out of what they were given, and they traded, right? They traded, and there was actual return on what they went and made, versus the passive words that are used of the third servant, like dug and hid. Like those, are, those are activities, but they're, they're bad activities. You with me on that? I, was like, I took the talent, I dug a hole, and I hid it. Like, that's not activity. That's, that's, that's the opposite. That's very regressive, right? That's not, that, that's not being commended in this. It's like, that's a good idea. And some of us are like, that is a good idea, though. At least he was safe with the one talent. That's the safe call. And it's like, yeah, yeah, but there's nothing about the kingdom of God that's safe. Like, we're not called to safety. We're not called to comfort. We're called to risk. We're called to die to ourselves so that we can actually experience life. And this guy did none of it. And notice what's rewarded in the first and second servant. I love this. The master says to the one with five, he's like, oh, you did a really good job. But the guy with two, he didn't do very well. Is that what he says? No. They're not rewarded for the amount that they accomplished. But they are rewarded for their resolve and the strength of their commitment to the master. So immediately you see how the the comparison game is just cut right off. Where the one that had two went and invested the two, made two more. And didn't look at the one with five and go, ah, but you did more. You did more than me, ah. And the master doesn't either. He actually commends both of them and says, you good and faithful servant. Because he's not looking at the amount accomplished. Because they weren't actually equally productive. You with me on that? They weren't equally productive. They weren't. But guess what they were? Equally approved. And that's the kingdom of God. That when we look around, there's going to be people who do way more than you. Way more than you. There's going to be people who are way more gifted than you. There's going to be churches who do way more than us. There's going to be churches who are way more gifted than us. Now we can sit and go like, oh, I wish that was us. Or we can say, look at all that we've been given. Look, look at the people we've given. Look at the context we've been given. Look at the, the resources we've been given. Look at the gifts and the talents sitting in, like your chairs, you, right? Like look at all that's been given to us. Let's go and faithfully steward it. So notice that other people are more productive, but we're equally approved. Why? Because true faith 
is trusting God with our whole life and risking what we have been given to serve him. That's what faith is. So we can sit around and be like, well, do you have the right beliefs in your head? Like, do you have the right theology? Or we can look and be like, no, no, but true faith is actual life, like showing up trust that shows up in the way that we throw our entire life at the master. Throw our entire life at the good Savior and Lord that we have and know. Like, that's true faith. It's like, yeah, but I'm not producing. I'm not doing as well as the other people. It's like, but that's not actually the measure of true faith. Notice that here. Uh, One commentator said it really well. Listen to this. The point is not that commendable stewardship equals success and productivity. I know we got to get off that, right? Like, it doesn't mean that good stewardship means a return, an ROI on what we put in, right? Faithfulness means risk more than results. In a world that places so much emphasis on success and productivity, average Christians, like you and me, can easily get the idea that good results equal success and poor results equal failure. That's why we hear only success stories. Like, if you pay attention at all to any conferences, Christian events or non, any TED Talks, you know who they don't have up on stage? Losers. Like anyone? Like, you're with me, right? Like, it's like, I made $16 billion by sitting at home and stroking butterflies. You know, it's just like, what? Like, how did you do that? That's a thing? Like, I don't understand, right? Like, they don't have the people who are like, I tried the butterfly thing too, but I didn't make anything, right? They're not on stage. Because our culture only puts the really like prim and proper and cosmetically altered success stories up there. And that's not most of us. (laughs) That's the thing. It's not most of us. And it doesn't mean we don't aspire for greatness and success. We do. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be productive. We're commanded to. But the good news, church, is that if you are a faithful follower of Jesus, your inevitable and promised end is good and faithful servant. Now, there's not going to be a comparison game at the end. That we all fall short of the actual standard of success, which is God himself. And that we're only and ever going to hear, well done, long before our casket closes. Like, like, that's it. Like, we live a life in light of well done, good and faithful servant. That we are already approved. That we are already called faithful because we throw ourselves and our entire life at the faithful one, Jesus Christ. Now, if you understand that, guess what? We're freed up to go and try to be as productive as possible, right? Now we can try to go succeed at stuff, kingdom, kingdom work. We can try to go do the best thing that we can. But when we fail, because we will, You know what's not compromised? Our identity as a good and faithful servant. And that's the good news of this. That's the good news that we're not evaluated based on the amount that we produced because that's out of our control, but on our commitment to the one who is in control. And that's the good news of this parable. Okay, but, and here's where our imperatives come. Here's where our, what do we do though? Notice that the faithful servants actually do something. Right? (laughs) Like like I know, it's really obvious. It's like... Dustin, you're so wise, right? But, but they, they do something. They actually do something. Notice that the master doesn't say, like, well done, well-intentioned, you know, like, well-intentioned, good and faithful servant. He says, well, well done, because like, they did something, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. They're rewarded for their doing. They're not rewarded for their intention. They're not rewarded for their thoughts and prayers, right? Or their feelings, or their, their dreams and their visions. They're rewarded for what they do. Like, like true action, faithful action as stewards is in response to 
who our master is. So we actually do something. So think James 1, right? Talking about dead faith. Talking about the kind of dance, the dance of faith and works and, and what God has done and then what we do in light of what God has done. James 1 says, like, be doers of the word. So like, do something. Like, like actually go and do it now. Because you're blessed in your, your doing. And then he goes on, James 1 goes on to talk about a worthless faith, a dead faith, a faith that does nothing. And it's the same word as the worthless servant. The worthless servant did nothing. And in James, the Greek word is bad math. Like it's just, it doesn't add up that you profess to know the master and then you do nothing. Like it's just, it's bad, it's bad math. It's bad math because the gospel is all about doing, amen? All of us, by grace, through faith, are like nervous. Like what do you, what do you mean, right? <laughs> right, it's like I'm, I'm with you. But here's what's important. The gospel is all about doing because we're celebrating what God has done. Like the gospel is about what God has done. And then guess what happens? Well, that changes us and then we go and do. We don't do stuff to try to earn that, but we do work from it. We're not saved through good works, but we are saved to good works. And now we get to. There's a freedom that we get to go and do that. Jesus didn't just save us from our sins. Like like he saved us to his service. And we have to understand that. And this is all over the New Testament. And I know we don't, you know, we don't really like meditate on these things very much because in our circles of by grace through faith, we, t- we get nervous. We get nervous anytime like there's like a, what do you mean I got to go do something now, right? But it's all about what God has done. That can lead to like this weird sense of passivity though. It's like I'm being passively obedient because God's grace has saved me by grace alone through faith. And I'm going to sit here and be faithful. It's like, yeah, but, but through faith, like there's actually a working and outworking of faith. There's, there's good works that flow from this that God has done in the gospel. Titus 3.14, let our people, us, all of us, learn to devote themselves to good works. First uh, Timothy 5.10, have a good reputation for good works. Like have a reputation for doing good things. Right? Like that, that's, that's very convicting. Hebrews 10.24, let us consider how to stir one another to love. Period. Mm-mm. Love and good works. It's like, have like a really good competition amongst each other on how, how many good works you can do, right? Not because we need to, because God's going to then approve us because of that, but because we get to. That's awesome. Something so encouraging about that. And the third servant misses this. The ser- third servant misses all of this. And I think most people probably identify with the, with the third servant. I mean, I, I did, because like even a million dollars is like, that's, that's a lot of money, right? One talent is a lot. Like the five talents guy, I'm like, five million dollars, that's a lot of money. I can't even like fathom that, right? Um, but with the, with, the, with the third servant, I think there's some good, good comparisons and some good lessons. So here's what we'll do. We'll just unpack a couple of them. Unlike the first and second servant, the third servant actually does nothing. He does nothing intentional. He does nothing productive or fruitful with what he's been given. So that's why he's called lazy. That's why he's called slothful is the word. That's a good word, slothful. Or sluggard. That's a good Old Testament word, you sluggard, right? You look at a slug. Like there's nobody who looks at a slug and is like, hmm, wonder how faithfully that slug is stewarding its day, right? Like you look at a slug or a sloth. Like sloths, you watch sloths and you're just like, like, how, why do you exist? Like, how do you exist? You know what I mean? Like, it's like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, and it's like, nothing, just being a sloth. You know, like, okay. So, <laughs> so, so the words here, sloth and sluggard, are really, really good words. But it, it, we have to understand what happens is the laziness that we see in the third servant is because he saw the master's absence as permission for laziness. 
Church, we have to be really careful not to see this time between the times, this time where we just get to, I don't know, heaven's my guaranteed return, so I just put my feet up and do nothing, right? I'll just be a sluggard. I'll just be a sloth and just hang here and eat whatever sloths eat. I don't know. They probably don't eat bananas. They eat something else. But that's what I'll do. I'll just do that because heaven's guaranteed for me. Well, the third servant doesn't get that. Instead of good and faithful servant, he gets evil and lazy. Like that's not what you want to hear. That's not uplifting, right? And the word for sloth here, the sluggard, is, it's irresponsible. It's, it's idle. It's, uh, it's you and me sitting and scrolling and clicking and binging and gaming and contributing nothing and giving nothing and producing nothing and serving no one. It's you and me. Proverbs has a lot to say about the sluggard. Proverbs 13, 4. The soul of the sluggard craves lots of things but gets nothing. Proverbs 20, verse 4. The sluggard doesn't plow in the fall and will seek at harvest but get nothing. There's no proactive activity on the sluggard's part. Everything just comes to me anyway. I'm just entitled. Everything's going to come to me. Proverbs 21, 25. The desire of the sluggard kills him because he refuses to work. All day long, he craves and he craves, but the righteous gives and doesn't hold back. Like that proverb is, is like this parable. It's literally this, right? Where the sluggard is, is, is compared to the two servants who are the righteous servants, who actually don't hold back. They go and throw their entire life at the master because they're, they're, they're entering into the joy, that they already have his approval, that they already enjoy him. And notice that the third servant says he's afraid of him. See that? You know what's not a good motivator for obedience? Fear. Anyone grow up in a household where it's just fear? You don't want to obey in fear. Like it's, not, it's not a good motivation. But here's what's crazy. The blame shifting and the excuses that we hear out of the third servant, if his fear was real, he wouldn't have done nothing. You understand that? He's lying. He's blame shifting. It's always someone else's fault. And, the, and, and the, the, the servant blames the master. Like, like that's, that's amazing. So like, like we just blame God. We're like, yeah, but, but my father wounds. But where I grew up. But my money. But the other person has more. And we do it all the time. And the ser- third servant is like, yeah, but, you know, I was afraid of you. He's not really. If he was really afraid, he would have gone and done something. And he doesn't even do the bare minimum doesn't even do the bare minimum. If he was really afraid, he would have at least done the bare minimum, right? Go throw that baby in the bank and let it accrue a little bit of interest. Instead, he goes and digs it, throws it in the ground because he doesn't care. He doesn't care. So listen, if you're just afraid of God, you won't enjoy him. You won't trust him. And you won't obey him. And that's the gospel. See, religion and non-religion can only offer us fear of the unknown that's coming. It's like, well, I'm going to die. And I go, well, I came from nothing. Go back to nothing. So I guess it's all meaningless anyway. Or, oh, yeah, I'm going to go meet God. I'm going to go to hell. Like, whatever. Oh, cool, I'll be with Hitler and ACDC. You know, whatever. Right? And, and, and like, you just don't, we just do nonsense, right? But, but living in fear does not motivate obedience. It doesn't, it doesn't motivate trust. It doesn't motivate good stewardship. But enjoyment does. Enjoying God does. So listen, are you just afraid of God? Or do you enjoy him? Like, do you actually enjoy him? Do you actually trust him? He actually wants to know him more. Okay, so out of this, here, let's just go. We gotta finish. See what happens when I don't preach for a week? Don't give me a week off ever again. That's, that's your fault. Okay, a couple things here. Number one, hear me on this one. It's been one of the biggest lessons I've learned in the last 10 years. 
Delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Begrudging obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. Some of us have not trusted, have never trusted God enough for him to rearrange our lives and that's why he hasn't. Because we're still holding back something or, or, or pieces out of fear or whatever. I, I don't trust him. I don't trust, I don't trust God. I can't give him everything because I don't know what he'll do with it. But the reason why he hasn't changed us is because we actually haven't trusted him to do so. And this servant and these kinds of people, and some, some, of, it, some of the times it's us, we just do everything with reluctance. Like, like we, or we only do when we're asked. Like, like you ask somebody to do something, they might do it, but they do it grudgingly because they're definitely not full of joy, right? Or it's always someone else's responsibility and fault. Like they're the ones dropping the ball. So I, I guess I'll be the Messiah and ride in and, and, and I'll, I'll, pull, I'll pull my weight now. It's this servant. They're never eager or proactive. They never take initiative. They're always needing to be asked. It's not a good look for a Christian church. It's not a good look at all. In fact, it, may, it might not even be Christian behavior. And so this is, this is really important, that delayed obedience. Some of you are delaying obedience for some hypothetical future version of yourself that will never happen. Or some circumstance that will never come. Do you know why? Because you're doing nothing. It'll never come because you're doing nothing. You with me on that? Like that there's actually, like there's active behaviors that, that move us there that are flowing out of obedience. And secondly, not doing the right thing is choosing to do the wrong thing. Not doing the right thing is choosing to do the wrong thing. Procrastinating from something that you know God has called you to. So just let that sit there for a second. Okay, don't play games with it. Just sit there for a second and be like, is this something I know God has called me to? Is this something I know that God's actually spoke into my life and, and actually called me to something? Is this something I know God has convicted me of? Sit with it for a second. Procrastinating from that, procrastinating from that thing that God has called you to is disobedience. The third servant's main issue here is the sin of omission. It's not even that what he does is wrong. It's what he doesn't do. It's not doing what he knows he should do. And wisdom just says, it's so crazy. Like wisdom says that if we don't do what God has called us to, guess what it, would, it will lead us to? To do the things he hasn't. Like, amen? So then we live doing all the things that God hasn't called us to. Why? Well, because we didn't actually do what God did call us to. And so often I do see this where we just hide behind like righteous passivity. Well, no, I'm praying about it. Like, okay, well, but prayer without works is dead. What are you doing? Like, no, I'm praying about it. I'm sending thoughts and prayers. Oh, I'm waiting on the Lord. I love that one. Really? Waiting on the Lord, are you? Okay. Maybe he's waiting on you. Like, maybe you should do something now. Right? And then we just like, we spend decades waiting on the Lord. And the, and the Lord's like, but what are you doing? Like, why aren't you doing something now? You know, like, how long are you going to wait on me? Like, I'm busy. Like, I'm busy doing stuff with people who are actually wanting me to do stuff, right, with them, you know? Like, so, so again, we have, like, almost a righteous passivity. Like, that's, like, that's deep. That's maturity. It's like, I'm just waiting on the Lord. It sounds so righteous. Like, wow, you're, you're spiritual. But not really. Because the things that God has already commanded don't need to be prayed about. They need to be done. 
Like, like, you understand that? Like, like, we don't need to pray about things God already commanded us to do. Like, if he commanded us to do them, we, we got to go do them now. Like, we actually, like that, that's what we have to do. So, like, that's Jesus' way of saying, let, that's Jesus for, like, like show up. Like, show up. Re, like, repent of sin. Like, fight to drag stuff out of the dark into the light. Fight to be honest in your walk with Christ. Like, like do something. Make a difference. Love people. Serve. Give. Take everything God's given you and do something and don't waste your life. That's, that's what Jesus just said. That's what this is. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, in a book, an old book, old good book, says this. So just go and marry someone, provided you're equally yoked and you actually like being with them. Get a job, provided it's not wicked. Go live somewhere, in something, with somebody or nobody. But put aside the passivity and the quest for complete fulfillment and the perfectionism and the preoccupation with the future. And for God's sake, start making some decisions in your life. Don't wait for the liver shiver. If you are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you will be in God's will. So just go out and do something. I love it. Some of us have never trusted God enough for him to rearrange our lives radically enough. And that's why he hasn't. He hasn't changed us because we haven't trusted him. He hasn't given us more because we've done nothing with what he has entrusted to us already. And that's exactly what happens with this servant. So church, that's us today. Today, not tomorrow. Not next year when you figure yourself out and you're a perfect human being and you're an amazing Christian, right? Like, like not when you like figure out how to be super spiritual a year from now. Like, like today, right? Like present obedience now. Like Jesus in Matthew 6 says, don't worry about tomorrow. Why? Well, because tomorrow will worry about itself. That means like handle today while it's today because tomorrow's not guaranteed. I've lost, I've lost people in my life this year, suddenly. And not, not old people, who are like, well, they were old. Young people, children, teenagers, suddenly hit by a car, gone. Because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. And here's the problem. If we have a future preoccupation with tomorrow, it zaps us of any energy and focus to actually do something today. And that's why Jesus is saying that. It's an unrealistic view of the future. So we need to trust and trust the future to God. Don't, don't, don't like when I get married, when I figure out, when I beat this habit that I have, when I get a promotion, when I have kids, when I have grandkids, when I retire, when I get a job, then I retire. Like when I go on vacation, like, like stop living like that because all we have is today. Worrying about tomorrow does paralyze us today and it also drains us of any strength and focus that we do need for today. So let me ask you a few questions as we pray and as we close. I think. How would you live differently than you are now if you got a call this afternoon letting you know that you have six months to live? That time is short. Or that, that like, like, how would you live today? Like tonight, how would you live tonight? How would it change you, how you live tonight if you know you only have six months and that clock is counting down? Would it change anything? I think it would. Would you live differently? Of course you would. Would your priorities be different? Oh yeah, they would, big time. They really would. Uh, what, what, what are you spending your life doing? Like I know it's just such like a simple question. But it's like, what are you doing? Like what are you actually spending your life on? What do you, what do you want to spend your life on? What are you doing with what God has, has given you? Have you even thought about it? Or are you just kind of doing, 
right? Like we just kind of like do stuff and like go and life just kind of sweeps us away and we never slow down enough to go like, like what am I actually gonna do with what God has given me because I don't even know what tomorrow holds. That encourages faithful obedience. That encourages stewardship. Lots of us can be busy doing lots of things, but we can do the wrong things. We can do things that ultimately just are, are, are just a waste of time. They just contribute zero to anything important. Are you wasting any aspect of your life right now? And I know COVID makes that stranger for sure. But how much time are you wasting? How much money are you wasting? How many relationships are you wasting? How many opportunities are you wasting in this season right now? And how can we steward them better? And last, what are you waiting for? <laughs> what are you waiting for? Like, are, are, you, are, you, are you waiting or are you working? Like, that, that's the difference between these servants. Like, what are you actually waiting for? Because if we don't sit and ask that question and answer it honestly and prayerfully, we'll end up seeing all of our excuses and all of our delayed obedience come out. So I encourage you to, like, answer that question. What are you actually waiting for? Because now you'll start to hear all of the excuses. You'll start to see the blame shifting as you, as you answer that question. Here's the beautiful thing about this parable. The only thing we're waiting for is our inevitable and promised end, and that is to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And if that's what we're waiting for, church, we're gonna get to work. We're gonna, we're gonna steward what we have. We're gonna realize that tomorrow is not promised. We're gonna realize that everything that I have has been entrusted, and I'm just called to manage it for the glory of God and the fame of Jesus Christ. Because my, my inevitable promised end, all I get to get in the future is well done, good and faithful servant. That's guaranteed. That's what we have to live towards. That's what we have to wait for. That's what we have to work towards and live for. Let me pray. Jesus, you, uh, you're faithful. You, you, just, you just love using people that the world would look at and say, you know, we have nothing to offer. That we're not the successful ones. We're not the ones who are killing it. We're not the ones producing all sorts of things. But Lord, I pray that out of our faithfulness as stewards, when we consider this truly and understand this, that we would faithfully steward everything you've been given us, every single relationship that makes up our life right now, that we would steward it, that we would entrust it to you. Every single dollar, every single breath, every single night, every night we have, every hour we have, that we would use it to continue to push us towards our inevitable end. And Lord, for those of us who don't know you, and haven't trusted you as master and Lord. Lord, we hear, hear this parable and the weeping and gnashing of teeth and the darkness and, and the inevitable end of not actually hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. I just pray that we would see that as an opportunity to turn, to turn now, to face you, to not run from you, to not fear you in an unhealthy way, but to come in awe of you because you're good. So I pray for each of us and our heart in that too. And I pray for us as a church just as a collection of disciples, a collection of stewards that are trying to figure out how to faithfully serve you with everything that you've given us, that we would do well and enter into the joy that we have to look forward to because we get to know you and use what you've given us for the, for the glory of your name and the fame of the gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.